Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. So this brings us to movie number three, um, which was my favorite of the four movies that we watched, uh, The Social Network. Based on a true story, I don't know how true to reality this movie is about Mark Zuckerberg and the founding of uh, Facebook. Now, I know that the broad facts are true, that he did have to pay off the Winklevosses and also the uh, Eduardo character. But we don't know how true to life this portrayal of Zuckerberg is. So we want to be fair to Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, we don't know this because, quite frankly, the character based on him is you know not that uh, uh, flattering. But anyway, TJ, tell us about the social network. So yes, as you mentioned, social networks about the genesis of Facebook. So we start with Mark Zuckerberg, played by Jesse Eisenberg, who's a Harvard student. And he's on a date at a bar, speaking very quick dialogue written by Aaron Sorkin. And he gets dumped by Erica Albright, played by Rooney Mara, who we will see again in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, who her parting words to him is that in the future, he's going to think that women don't like him because he's a nerd. The truth is that they don't like him because he's an asshole. So Zuckerberg just takes this with a straight face, goes back to his dorm, blogs bitterly about her, and then to distract himself, builds a website called FaceMash, where people can vote on which of two female co-eds is hotter. This goes viral on campus and crashes the network within hours of its creation. So because of his acumen in creating this, he's asked by the handsome athletic Winklevoss twins, both played by Army Hammer, to build a dating site that they've envisioned specifically for Harvard students. And he secretly adapts this idea on his own and gets funded by his best friend Eduardo Saverin, played by Andrew Garfield, and builds Facebook. So the story is told with multiple flash forwards to depositions for two lawsuits against Zuckerberg, one by the Winklevoss twins for stealing their idea, and the other by Eduardo Saverin for edging them out of the company. So we see more of the second story with Eduardo Saverin, with Saverin wanting to monetize the site with advertising and Zuckerberg not wanting to. And then Zuckerberg comes under the influence of Sean Parker, played by Justin Timberlake, who's the co-founder of Nabster, which is dead by this point. And he has all the Silicon Valley connections that they don't, and convinces Zuckerberg to drop out of Harvard and move to Palo Alto. And he has his lawyers screw Saverin out of his share of the company. Uh, Zuckerberg is advised to settle both suits, which he does. And Facebook goes on to be worth billions, and the movie closes with Zuckerberg sitting at his computer, sending a friend request to Erica Albright, who dumped him at the beginning of the movie, and refreshing the screen repeatedly, waiting to see if she will accept him as a friend. So this movie that I remember when it came out, there being some confusion and cynicism about, like, why would somebody make a movie about the founding of Facebook? How could that possibly be interesting? And it was a massive hit. And it resurrected Aaron Sorkin's career, and it made Mark Zuckerberg a household name. You know, people widely used Facebook by the time it came out in 2010. But Zuckerberg wasn't known. He wasn't as much of a public figure. And whether this portrayal of him is accurate, as you point out, we don't actually know. But it is fantastically vivid and a great five character. I've always been a big fan of Jesse Eisenberg. I think he's been good in everything I've ever seen. I think he is brilliant in this. I think this is one of the great film performances of recent years. I think that it's underrated because he's so 
embodies that character, right? It seems so real, it almost doesn't seem like he's acting, right, in, in my view. Uh, but he is just so good in his, it's clear that he just does not know how to connect to people, right? That he is, you know, almost as if he lacks the capacity for theory of mind, when it comes to others, right? It's almost as if other people are objects that he just can't understand that there's any interiority to them and how to relate to that interiority, right? He just seems so self-centered in a way where he just can't demonstrate the capacity for empathy, but also has this brilliance around how to sell, to people, right? How to get people hooked on his product. There's a genius to it. So that, that to me is this fascinating contradiction embedded within this character, right? A tremendous intellectual understanding of other people. But as far as emotional intelligence, there, there's not a sign of it anywhere with this guy. The other thing that struck me too, I, I was thinking, so again, we have Trent Reznor as the composer. I think this was the first time they worked together. Uh, I think they actually worked together in, um, in seven. I'm not, not seven, Fight Club. I uh, no, think. That was the Dust Brothers. No? Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. Okay. All right. It's good. So they do work together again in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, a very different soundtrack, right? And when we're listening to the music of the social network, we're not hearing Nine Inch Nails. We're hearing something delicate and beautiful and sparse. And electronic. El electronic, right. Uh, but beautiful in a way of, you know, kind of detached and floating over the environment in a way. Okay, which again is this artistic beauty of the five that, that we can see sometime, right? That there is this aesthetic sense, but almost kind of removed from contact with humanity. Anyway, I just, I, I thought this movie, watching it again, I've seen it a number of times, but I just sat there in awe of the structuring of this movie, right? Again, of putting it together, the weaving together of flashbacks and different points of view and telling the story from different characters' perspectives and weaving those together. I, I, I just I just thought it was a brilliant movie. So um, it was a five-ish character. Say more about that, TJ. How do you see the Zuckerberg character as a five in this? Well, for one thing, he's incredibly caustic and, and seemingly feels no emotions. And that's one of those stereotypes about fives, that fives don't have emotions. Fives might even tell you that themselves, but it's not true at all. Of course they have emotions. They just choose to disconnect with them. So the scene after he gets dumped, he comes back to his college dorm, and then he's creating this thing, Face Mash, and he needs an algorithm to make it work from his friend Saverin. So he gets the guy to come over to his room, and there's a bit of dialogue. Let me see if I can find it. Where, yeah, it, or it might be his roommate. But anyway, he comes back to the room, and his roommate says, are you all right? He says, I need you. Are you okay? We're ranking girls. Do you think this is a good idea? I need your algorithm. So he refuses to answer the question three times about how he feels. Yeah. It's, it's almost like that question is irrelevant. Right. Or I'd rather not go there. It's kind of both. Yeah. And I would rather focus on a mental puzzle. He yes. literally says, I need a project to distract me. Yeah. And, you know, it's three in the morning. He's been drinking. What does a normal person do at that point? Maybe keep drinking, pass out, listen to some music, 
smoke pot, watch a favorite movie or something. What this guy does is build a website and blog about how he's doing it as he's doing it, including how he got all the contacts from all the different dorms in order to input them into this so that there's you know a new succession of beautiful co-eds for people to rank. It's like, this is the kind of mental puzzle that this guy does in his spare time to escape from feelings. Yes. So, yeah, very five-ish. Yeah, scene after scene of intellectual arrogance, for sure, right? I mean, just even when he is talking to the Rooney Mara character uh, in the beginning, you know, she wants to go back to her room to study, right? He wants to, you know, keep talking or something. And he keeps saying to her, you don't need to study, right? You don't need to study. And she says, she says, well, why? And he says, because you go to BU, for God's sake. Right. You know, just insulting. And and BU is pretty darn good school. Right. I mean, you know, maybe it's not Harvard or, or MIT, but it's a pretty darn good school. But to him, it's dismissive. You know, he's a guy that got 1600s, a perfect score on his SATs, the, the college entry test. Uh, and he's just disdainful throughout this. There is that great scene again where um, he's uh, he's being deposed in much of this film. So it's structured so that it's bouncing around. It's kind of current moment as a deposition where he's being sued by uh, the Winklevosses who originally had the idea and tried to hire him to do something that ultimately grew into Facebook. And then Savarino, who was suing him for his ownership stake. And then it flashes back. But he's being deposed and he's not paying attention to the uh, the attorney. And the attorney says, do I have your attention? And he says, you have, you know, what did he say? Like one tenth of my attention, or something like that. And he says, "Well, don't you think I deserve you have more? the minimum amount? You have the minimum amount of my attention." And he says, "Well, don't you think I deserve your attention?" And he just blasts him, you know, and says, "No, you don't deserve my attention. I'm trying to figure this out. My mind is here. I'm thinking of all these important things, and I have to deal with you, you idiot, right? And so you're getting the minimum amount of my attention that I have to give you, you know. Otherwise, I'm pretending you don't exist." I've got the full quote here. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. He says, I think if your clients want to sit on my shoulders and call themselves tall, they have the right to give it a try. But there's no requirement that I enjoy sitting here listening to people lie. You have part of my attention. You have the minimum amount. The rest of my attention is back at the offices of Facebook, where my colleagues and I are doing things that no one in this room, including and especially your clients, are intellectually or creatively capable of doing. Did I adequately answer your condescending question? And of course, that's just met with silence. It's just one of the, who knows if he actually said that. I mean, right. depositions do have a stenographer taking records of it. We see that within the scene. It's possible he said something like this. It's possible he said something that he said this verbatim. We don't know. Yes. But it's such a beautiful five moments saying you're not smart enough to understand me in such a smart way yes. to say that and to basically to punch somebody in the face. Yes. With his intelligence. Yes. And then there's, there's, there's another moment very similar to this when the lawyer is talking to Saverin and saying, so you invested another $18,000 in Facebook? Yes. In addition to the initial $1,000? Yes. So that makes $19,000? Yes. And Zuckerberg says, hold on a minute. Let me check those numbers. And he adds up 18000 plus 1000 says, I'm just checking the math on that. Yes, I got the same thing. And David Fincher said that that's his favorite line in the entire movie. <laughs> Just being a condescending intellectual dick. But he's also right. Yes. And it made me think of the uh, Bill Gates testimonies, right? When Microsoft was being accused of uh, violating uh, antitrust laws and he had to go and um, 
excuse me, give depositions before the Department of Justice. And videos of those did leak out. And you see Gates kind of sitting there rocking in his seat, you know, and, and, you know, completely sort of curled up in himself and his answers being smug and aggressive and combative in the same way that Zuckerberg's are here, right? So a real life example of the very same phenomenon from another brilliant uh, Enneagram type five, right? There was also, um, there were a couple other things that were so vividly five-ish. The indifference to the money part of it, right in the beginning okay now i don't know again um you know zuckerberg is one of the wealthiest people in the world but it really does feel true that the money wasn't it for him it was the intellectual challenge it was building something it was achieving something that only a great mind could do and the average person couldn't it was almost like i am going to prove something to you and that is one of the themes that you know that is implied through this is he does all this to impress the girl who rejected him early on that seems a little simplistic to me right i'm guessing there is more going on in the psyche of mark zuckerberg than just uh wanting to impress a girl but i do kind of buy the indifference to money that was uh, one of the themes in the beginning one of the things they bring up when he's being interviewed by the Winklevoss twins and their partner, whose name escapes me right now, but played by, oh, what's his name? Yeah, Max Minghella, uh Divya Narendra was the character. Yeah, there we go. So they're, they're, they do give a very brief overview of what he did before. And then, you know, that's when it came out that he had a perfect score in his SATs. But it, they said that he came up with a media player, which I think it was Microsoft or some major company wanted to buy for six figures. And instead, he just gave it away online, yeah. made it open source yeah. when he was a teenager. Yeah. So there was no reason for him to have done that. There was no reason for it. You know, he wasn't necessarily rich then. I have no idea what kind of financial circumstances his family was in growing up. But it's hard for me to imagine any teenager turning down a six-figure offer for something they themselves built to just say, no, I'm going to give it away. Yeah. But that speaks to exactly what you're saying. It's like, I don't need this money. Yes. And maybe more critical to a five is... If you buy this, then you own this thing that I created. Or maybe you have some kind of control over me. No, thanks. And control is the theme, right? So, you know, people always think of eights when they talk about control. But control and autonomy is a huge, huge issue for fives. And that's one of the themes. When they first meet with Sean Parker, uh, played by Justin Timberlake, and he says, you know, someday, you know, you're going to have a business card that says, I'm the CEO, bitch. Right. And ultimately, that's what his discard says. It's kind of anticlimactic and almost makes him look like more of an asshole at the end than he does through the rest of the movie. But it is this idea. And to this day, Zuckerberg maintains control of that company. Right. I mean, he is um, he was smart enough to maintain the majority of the voting stock. It's his company. Right. And other people have stock in it and there are other investors and so forth. But this is my thing is basically what Zuckerberg is saying. And he's deeply unpopular with a lot of people. And it doesn't seem to phase him. Right. He does what he wants. He defends his business practices. He defends his idea. He defends his company. Yes. He maintains control. Yeah. And I've been trying to stay away from, you know, commentary on Facebook, you know, being as it's been in the news so much lately and the dangers that have been exposed and the dangers that were known about internally, you know, that are coming out with this whistleblower, this idea that they knew 
there were these dangers to what they were doing. Number one, the effect it had on teenage girls, for example, the susceptibility to hackers and misinformation, not so much hackers, but, um, you know, the, the, the false news purveyors. And it's almost as like, well, that's not my problem, right? My problem is solving these technical problems and creating this vision that I have. And I don't want to be distracted from this vision that I have by these worldly concerns that aren't that don't really affect me. So I think that's one of the big dangers that fives can fall into by not having that contact sometimes with their own humanity, right? And I want to go back because I want to agree with something and highlight something you said before that fives do have emotions and fives that I have talked to will tell me things like, oh no, I, I'm very emotional, but I contain it. Because if I let it go, it would explode, right? And you get this feeling with Zuckerberg throughout the movie of this kind of coiled character that if, you know, one more drop of pressure and something is going to happen, some explosion is going to occur. And we see these sort of controlled micro explosions that happen, but are directed surgical, you know, eviscerations of people throughout the movie. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. What else about this social network? Well, one of the things that came to mind watching it is even though we just talked about David Venture probably being a preserver, I think this movie is a movie that's all about navigating. Yeah. Uh, it's Ultimately, it comes down to who's in and who's out. There's the fact that creating even FaceMash, much less Facebook, is done. It's intercut with scenes of the beautiful, popular, rich kids at the final clubs. The very first conversation that he has in that bar with the girlfriend who ends up dumping him is about wanting to get into a final club. I'd, I'd never even heard of final clubs. Yeah, Initially, I thought this was like study groups to study to get good <laughs> grades on your final exams. No, it's basically this is where the exclusive people meet and form connections that will then pave the way for them to be among the elite in society. And he wants to get into the best one. And they don't seem interested in him. And that's when he goes home and he makes face mash, which then we see intercut with scenes of them or people at this final club and girls are stripping and people are having drinking contests and they're partying and they're dancing. And then within that party, somebody discovers face mash and suddenly they're all hunched around their laptop raiding girls at this party. It's like it's a triumph of the outsiders over the beautiful popular people. Over the span of the movie, Saverin gets tapped, as he calls it, by one of the exclusive clubs. And... Zuckerberg recognizes what that means and tries to diminish from what that means from says it was probably diversity, but who cared? And then in a later scene, when he says, I made the second cut, he said, that's good. You should be proud of that right there. Don't worry if you don't get any further. Yeah. So again, trying to like denigrate this 
this mark of exclusivity, this mark of approval from the in-club. And then the whole focus of the movie is that Saverin ends up getting squeezed out in favor of Sean Parker. There's a connection with Sean Parker. Sean Parker's got, again, social connections, business connections in Silicon Valley. So he can open up all of these doors to different venture capitalists and things like that, which ends up working. And then there's all this resentment of like, what's Eduardo doing in New York all summer trying to find advertisers? Why is he not here with us in California? And then that's when they finagle to edge him out of the company. Everybody else is in, you are out. Yes. So a lot of navigating themes in there, which is really interesting and ironic given that Zuckerberg is presented as this guy with no social graces whatsoever. But he's not unaware of how people's feelings work, of social status. He uses that. He just wears this mask of, it doesn't affect me. I don't care. But the whole gist of Facebook is it's a program to help people communicate with each other. And something that David Fincher said is there's tremendous irony in this character who doesn't know how to communicate, creating this platform for for people to communicate with each other. Yes. I I completely agree. It It is a navigating movie. It is about identity. It is about status. It is about trust and reciprocity. It is about tracking relationships. It is about tracking the herd, right? What are my people up to? It is about who's in, who's out, who is accepted, who is not. One of the things I always say when we talk about the instinctual bias is just because somebody has an instinctual bias toward a particular domain does not mean they're skillful at it. So our attention can go to an area, but we can lack the skillfulness in that area, right? So we see preservers, for example, who are obsessed with health issues and resource issues and comfort issues, but not skillful at getting their needs met, right? We see transmitters who are obsessed with transmitting, being seen, being heard, but doing in a way that alienates the very people they are trying to transmit to and connect to. Okay, so this is a great example of that. You know, like I said before, it captures this idea that he is profoundly inept at the empathic aspect of communicating with people, but a genius at understanding the intellectual way of managing in this domain, right, this navigating domain. So I I completely agree with you. It captures that and, uh, you know, very, very skillfully. So a lot of times people think that the navigating domain or the social instinct is about wanting to change society or being, you know, this desire to be part of the group. This gives the lie to that, right? I mean, Zuckerberg does not want to be part of any group, but he wants to know what the group is doing. He wants to understand it. You know, he wants to know that he could be part of the group if he wanted to be. Right, even though he doesn't really want to have connection to people. So, uh, very good observation. David Fincher described the movie as the Citizen Kane of John Hughes movies. <laughs> and it's interesting that you, that you brought up The Breakfast Club in season one as, uh-huh. as the epitome of the navigating instinct. Right, right. It directly builds on that yes. in a lot of ways. Yes. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Uh, I, I, I would agree. I really think... Um, you know, again, for me, if there was one of these movies that I would, you know, rush to see again, all great movies, but if there was one I would rush to see again, it's The Social Network. I, I just think this is a, a brilliant, brilliant movie. Uh, certainly the screenplay by Aaron Sorkin helps. It's one of his best, I think. It's just, it doesn't have any of the sort of preachy quality that a lot of Sorkin's 
scripts can have, like A Few Good Men come to mind. Even the trial of the Chicago 7 seemed that way a little bit. Uh, there's this tendency, like in the West Wing, you know, this tendency to be a little bit preachy sometimes with Aaron Sorkin. That, that was not here. I don't know if it's because Fincher, you know, kind of stripped it out of him or not, but really, really big fan of this movie. One last thing to say is that Fincher described relating to Mark Zuckerberg as a character in this movie, saying he knows what it's like to be a 21-year-old brilliant person who just wants to be left alone to do the thing he wants to do to realize his genius idea. David Fincher started directing commercials and videos in his early 20s and had to deal with the condescension of older and more experienced crews who were like, who's this young pup? And yet, like a healthy five, he is a visionary. He does make us see things in new ways. He uses the camera, he uses editing, he uses all the elements of cinema to craft a vision that is uniquely his and that gives that gift to the world. So it's interesting to think of him, even though Zuckerberg doesn't come off as sympathetic in any way in the movie, that he wasn't the villain from David Fincher's point of view. He was somebody that he related to. Yes, that's an important point. You, You almost think that for Fincher, Zuckerberg is kind of a sympathetic character, right? And that moment of him trying to a friend, trying to friend the girl, is this kind of sad, very human touch to end the movie on. An utterly straight face. Yes, yes. There's no, there's no close up, so you see a bit of a tear in his eye or anything <laughs> like no that. There's no earnestness. It's almost like he's refreshing his bank statement. Yes, absolutely. No earnestness in the, in the movie. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It's currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. All right. So this brings us to movie number four, our final film, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, made one year after the the social network. It was a, I guess not a remake of the Swedish movies, but certainly based on the three books by Stieg Larsson. I don't know uh, when the other movies, do you know when the, the Swedish versions of the movies were made? 2009. The entire trilogy came out in 2009 in Sweden. Okay. All right. So it was, you know, again, not not so much a remake, but based on the book in the same way. This was, again, I thought, a great movie. It goes from, you know, we talked about how uh, his movies are either kind of sparse and Scandinavian or, you know, down and dirty and gritty and decrepit like Seven and Fight Club. And this one takes place in in northern Europe, in Sweden, and it has that cold feel to it in every sense, right? I mean, uh, the people are cold, the weather is cold, the decor is aloof. I've been to Sweden a couple of times and love it. The people there are wonderful. 
but I could feel the characters in this one as well, right? So it was very interesting. So uh, Girl with Dragon Tattoo is the 2011 neo-noir psychological thriller based on the 2005 novel by Swedish writer Stieg Larsson. Directed by Fincher, screenplay by Stephen Zalian, starring Daniel Craig as journalist Michael Blumkvist and Rooney Mara as Lisbeth Salander. Tells the story of Blumkvist's investigation to find out what happened to a girl from a wealthy family who disappeared 40 years prior. He recruits the help of Salander, a computer hacker. So uh, another summary, uh, Blumkvist is an investigative reporter. He is being sued by someone that he libeled, a wealthy industrialist who he libeled and basically has ruined his career as an investigative journalist. And he's actually facing criminal charges. Uh, He leaves the magazine that he works for called Millennium, which he co-edits with Robin Wright, who is, and I just have to say this, I've always been a huge Robin Wright fan. But in this movie, if I've ever seen a better looking woman in my life, I I can't think of it. I was even able to get over her attempt at a Swedish accent, which she, you know, attempts in the first part of the movie, but seems to quickly abandon, right? Because it ain't working for her. Which Daniel Craig never does. No, and and more credit to him, right? It's funny because accent-wise, it's all over the place, right? With Christopher Plummer and Stellan Skarsgård and, you know, all these people, uh, all these great actors. But anyway, we'll set that aside. So he leaves the magazine and he is hired by Christopher Plummer's character, uh, whose name is Henrik Wenger, the head of an old industrial family who have their own share of to write a uh, biography, ostensibly to write a biography of the family, but truly to find out what happened to his niece who disappeared 40 years ago. It's kind of an undercover assignment. Uh, He is certain that the niece was murdered, but he keeps getting these dried flowers every year. So each year for 40 years, he has received in the mail from an anonymous source that they have been unable to track one of these dried flowers that his niece used to give him when she was still there. So um, Mikhail takes to the task and moves into a small cottage on the Vanger estate on a small island which is just a creepy, creepy place because there's all these different members of the family living there. A couple of them are Nazis and, you know, each one of them is less pleasant than the other, it seems. And he begins to try to figure... None of them get along. None of them get along. They all hate each other. They're waiting for each other to die so they can take over the money and all, all this sort of thing. And, you know, some of them are trying to undermine his efforts to find out what happened for reasons that become clear to us. So Blumkfist, again, played by Daniel Craig, hires the services of Lisbeth Salander, who is actually the investigator who investigated him before he was hired for this role. This is the character we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, who is, again, clearly A5. Rooney Mara has done an interview where she said this was based on, you know, Riso and Hudson's book. This is what a five is. Uh, Couldn't be more different from the character she played in The Social Network. I mean, this is really, really shows versatility in acting. I thought she was just fantastic in this movie. Plays kind of a, I don't know, would you call, would we call her a goth sort of character? I, I don't know if that's quite the right word. Uh, when we first see her, she has kind of a mohawk haircut, piercings in various places, tattoos, etc. Dresses in black, completely lacking in any 
social graces. When she's introduced to people, she doesn't acknowledge them. She just wants to get right to solving the puzzles. She's a gifted computer hacker and a tormented, tormented soul, right? Really been through a lot of abuse in her life. The scenes with the state guardian, dark, right? Dark and disturbing. She's she's raped by this guy multiple times. And then she, shall we say... And it's a long scene. Yes. When we see it, like, there's a, there's a part early in that scene when he takes her into the room and closes the door. And it, it would be very plausible just to end yes. the scene there. The door is closed. We can imagine what yes. happened in that bedroom. That's not how the scene plays no. out. We're in that bedroom for a long yes. time. It's very much the five directors saying, look at this horror. Yes. Look at how horrific it is. Yes. Look at how awful this abuse of power is. Yes, and that tracking shot away from the door made me think of that quote from Fincher about how in every neighborhood there's one house where you wonder what's going on inside there, right? That people are perverts, etc. And this seemed to be, you know, a testament to that almost, right? It's that, you know, this is that house, right? It's an apartment actually, but this is that place where there's this pervert, you know, behind the door, this dangerous pervert. And again, she acts out this, what would be a fantasy to many people of getting a really brutal revenge on this guy to the point where it's hard to say you feel sorry for him, but wow, does she get him, right? I mean, you know, she really, uh, really gets her revenge. You know, again, deserved, but still it's like, holy cow, you know, this is a woman you don't want to mess with for sure. And she's straight-faced the entire time yes. as she meets her revenge. You never see her crack a single facial expression. You never hear her raise her voice. Yes. She is just flat and businesslike the entire time. Yes. And the revenge is both physical and digital. Yes. Because it turns out that she had secretly filmed yes. the rape and threatens, like, if I die in an accident, if you hit me with a car, if any of these things happen, that film will go yes. live online. Yes. So it's like she's got him in binds in every possible yes. way. She has thought of everything. Yes. So she goes to help Blomqvist. She provides a number of the insights he needs to solve the problem. They start to realize that it's not just Harriet who may have been murdered. We find out that she wasn't actually uh, towards the end of the movie, but that some of the Vangers, I think the uh, Henrik's brother and nephew, played by Stellan Skarsgård, were indeed serial killers and brutal, vicious serial killers at that who are acting out anti-Semitic rage on women according to punishments described in the Old Testament. Again, we have this theme back, you know, similar to Seven, right? This uh, meeting out of the vengeance of God, in a sense, right? And this is, again, another thing we see in movies about disturbed fives is this feeling of being godlike, in a way. Certainly the John Doe in Seven. I also bring up, again, Manhunter, the Francis Dolleride character who was taking this godlike view of uh, his interactions with the world. Anyway, so they solve the mystery, find out that the Stellan Skarsgård character is the serial killer. He almost makes Blumkfist one of his victims in a pretty harrowing, horrifying scene where he's tormenting him before he's about to kill him. He is saved by Elizabeth. You know, she rescues him. And 
you know, they're having this relationship, Blomqvist and Salander throughout the movie. They have sex a couple of times. And in her way, she's kind of falling in love with him. And at the end of the movie, buys him a Christmas gift and goes to give it to him, but finds him back with his mistress, uh, played by um, Robin Wright. Thank you. Boy, Robin Wright. We've been doing this too long here. All right. So the the Robin Wright character. And so she throws the gift into a trash can and rides off on her motorcycle. Excellent movie. Technically brilliant. Interesting. Engaging in the puzzle and the mystery. Certainly keeps you on the edge of your seat as a thriller. Interesting characters. And a hard movie to watch for me. So uh, tell me your thoughts on Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. So a few more five things about Salander as a character is we see her living space. We see her apartment, which is very messy and grungy. And she seems to live on instant noodles, Coke, and bags <laughs> of junk food from 7-Eleven or McDonald's. She smokes throughout her apartment. One of the costuming choices I thought was brilliant was they bleached her eyebrows blonde, which makes it look like she doesn't have any eyebrows. And something I read in Ozzy Osbourne's autobiography was that a prank he liked to play on friends who would pass out on his couch would be to shave their eyebrows, shave them right off. And he said it made them look like they had no facial expressions because a lot of facial expressions come from the eyebrows. So with Salander seeming to have no eyebrows, mm. that accentuates how emotionless she seems throughout the movie. Her relationship with her initial guardian, who's benevolent, who she loves, is playing chess. Chess is frequently a passion of five. Yes. Chess involves no chance other than who starts. It's all intellectual acumen. The Queen's Gambit was a really popular Netflix miniseries yes. in the last year, and the main character in that, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, is Great a five. huge five. Yeah. And there's a story of, of Stanley Kubrick on the set of Dr. Strangelove, who had to figure out how he was going to corral George C. Scott, who was big old eight, of like, how am I going to get this guy to do what he wants, to do what I want? And he challenged him to a chess game and trounced mm. him because Scott was a passionate chess player. And as soon as he beat him definitively, he said Scott would do whatever he wanted. Wow. So uh, another thing, another T-shirt that she wears at one point when Bloomkiss, you know, comes to enlist her help, she's wearing a T-shirt that says, fuck you, you fucking fuck. <laughs> it's just it's a classic expression of hostility that she wears on her chest. Yeah. Well, and then later in the movie, when she comes to her initial guardian, the chess player, who's had a stroke, which is what puts her in the clutches of the evil guardian, she describes her relationship with Blumfist, saying that she's found a friend. And that's about all she says. She says, I've found a friend, one you'd approve of. I'm happy. You would never know that that's what she meant if you were watching this with the volume off. Or you know, if you were watching it in Swedish. She doesn't radiate happiness at all. No. She says it very neutrally. That's her version of expressing happiness and being in love. Yeah. And, of course, the fact that it ends with her heart being broken, and that's the final moment of the film, is a brilliant five moment. Yeah. That's not how the Swedish version of the film ends. It's just that that was a beautiful touch on David Fincher's part, or maybe from the screenplay, although I'm sure he had enough clout to change the moment in the movie if, in the screenplay if he wanted to. It's like, no, 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 let's end it there. Right. No happy ending for Lisbeth. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. So my understanding was that there was supposed to be a second 
part to this that they were going to go on. I'm not sure why they didn't. It was a successful movie. I think the timing might just have not been right for whatever reason. I don't know. This might be about the time that Craig landed the Bond role as well. He was already Bond. He was already Bond. Okay. What I read was that it was successful, but not hugely successful. Right. It was an expensive movie to make. I mean, they spent $90 million on it. So the film made back, let's see, uh, $240 So yeah, success, but not a big success. Which has been the, you know, kind of Fincher's story, right? He's made a lot of movies that are great, but not big successes. And I think what has worked against him is that people walk out of the movie kind of on a downer, right? And it doesn't really inspire word of mouth. You don't meet up with your friends after a David Fincher movie and say, oh, you got to go see this movie. It was so awesome kind of thing. You kind of say, oh, it was great, but I need a shot and then I want to go to bed. (laughs) You know, Uh, so I want to go cry myself to sleep now, you know, and it doesn't inspire your friends and family to run out and see the next David Fincher movie, but a really, really good movie. So we usually do an honorable mentions role here. We already talked, you mentioned the game Gone Girl. I think is a great, great movie. I don't know that I would put it into the five category or expressing five-ish themes, but a really, really clever, smart, well-acted, well-shot sort of movie. Zodiac, absolutely kind of a five, the Jake Gyllenhaal character who figures out the mystery of the Zodiac or thinks he did because he likes to solve puzzles, right? And so he turned the hunt for the Zodiac killer into a puzzle. What else about other movies and Fincher and Type 5? Well, something that jumped out, I did rewatch Alien 3 in preparation for this, and it's definitely not bad. It's not great, but it's not bad. Fincher himself has all but disowned it. There was so much studio interference. He was 27, and he was given a huge budget for a franchise film. Yeah. So he didn't have any of the creative control that he wanted and would subsequently get. So he doesn't like the film, but watching it, there was something that stood out to me. Same with Panic Room, which was another movie yes. that wasn't hugely successful, but certainly wasn't a bomb. But again, that preserving theme comes in in both of them. Alien 3 takes place on a planet where the Sigourney Weaver character crash lands, and it's a prison. It's a big lead foundry, and it's got a skeleton crew of people serving, men serving life sentences. And it's really grungy. The environment feels lived in. There's rust. There's bugs. There's all kinds of things that, you know, you just get, this doesn't seem like a sterile set that was constructed. It was definitely constructed. It's all on sound stages. But it feels incredibly lived in and vivid in a way that really brought to mind the house on Paper Street and Fight Club or the cottage by the sea in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo where Bumquist stays, which in those scenes in it, it, feels cold like he gets in there and it doesn't seem like the cottage has been prepared for his stay in a slice she she even asked him at one point is it any warmer inside and he says no with the cottage yeah and then same in panic room panic room takes place entirely in this one huge manhattan apartment so on the one hand this is house porn to imagine anybody having an apartment this huge much less in manhattan yes two people having this so it's like three or four stories with bedrooms on two stories, big staircases. It's beautiful. It's mostly empty because the story takes place when the house has just been moved into or The apartment has just been moved into and three thieves come and try and rob it. And the thing that they want is in the panic room, the safe room where the Jodie Foster character and her daughter are holed up. So you're spending the entire time in this environment. So really rich for preserving yeah. just in like, you can tell this is a director who likes filming the places people live and showing just how evocative 
how evocative can I make this? How much can I make the audience feel like they themselves live there for the two hours? And to your point, I mean, it's a panic room, right? It's a room within the room where you go to hide from the dangers of uh, light brings you away, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you make sure that you have enough water and enough canned tuna and that sort of thing in there. And there's the security cameras and all these other sort of things. I mean, what better metaphor is there for the preserving instinctual bias? And what five wouldn't want that? <laughs> what preserving five particularly? Right. right. A preliminary five might go in there, not necessarily when criminals come, just when anyone comes. (laughs) Right, right. Yes, yes, we have company. I'm going to go to the panic room for a while. (laughs) (laughs) And watch them through my security cameras. (laughs) All right, great. Anything else on on Fincher's movies in Type 5? Just one detail that is just jumping out at me in near the end of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, when the killer, and first of all, the killer played by Skull and Skarsgård, embodies that phrase the banality of evil because again he's not a maniac he's just incredibly cold and cynical and in the scene where he's about to kill the bloomfist character he puts on a song and what song does he choose orinoco flow by enya Mm. this almost new age pop song which is so awfully ironic and again just speaks to beneath this veneer of nice beautiful society is horror yes Yes. again it's that house where you know there's something weird going on it looks okay from the outside but you just know that they're up to something bad in there right the house is beautiful we spend a fair bit of time in that house too there's glass it's on the top of a big bluff it's got a view of the ocean it's clean modern furnishings good warm lighting all over the place and then in the basement (laughs) is hell Hell on earth. <laughs> yes. So um, I think we've established our position here that David Fincher and his movies represent Enneagram Type 5. Now, I do want to, again, remind people that, as with many of these things, that these movies do not represent the typical Enneagram Type 5, right? They And certainly not the healthy version of the Enneagram Type 5. They capture the more dysfunctional elements of the Enneagram Type and manifestations of that. So, of course, if it was just a normal person going about their day, it wouldn't be a very good movie and it wouldn't be a very interesting character study, right? This is one of the problems why it's kind of hard to find good interesting, healthy manifestations of a lot of the Enneagram types in movies because they wouldn't be interesting, right? It'd be like watching Leave It to Beaver or something. So any apologies to fives who feel picked on, (laughs) you know, with with these choices? Brilliant movies really capture that feeling of the internal darkness that can be existing in some fives. And again, the intellectual precision the intellectual curiosity and rigor and passion for understanding the world, the people in it. So some of the the higher elements of five. So we thank everybody for joining us. Next time, we are going to take a different turn for sure and talk about the work of director, producer, actress, Reese Witherspoon with our guest, uh, Briose Monita. So looking forward to that session. TJ, thanks as always for being with me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. It was a great fun exploring these movies again, diving into the darkness. So long, everybody. You've been listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, which is produced and edited by Seth Creekmore and is part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Don't forget to go online and support the podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time.